This is the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. We got a uh, particular type of sound on this record, which you don't get every day. Uh, we didn't know what we had when we did it, but but uh, we did it anyway. say that one time when I was about 16 or 17 years old, I went to see Buddy Holly play at uh, in a Duluth National Guard Armory, and I was, I was three feet away from him, and he looked at me. I just have some kind of feeling that he was, uh, I don't know how or why, but I know he was with us all the time. We were making this record in some kind of way. Sick of love, and I'm in the thick of it. In the words of, you know, the immortal Robert Johnson, the stuff we got will bust your brains out. This kind of love, I'm so sick of it. If it were ever in doubt, it becomes clear after the opening couple of numbers that a Bob Dylan concert in 2019 is not for everyone, or indeed anyone. The concert is for Dylan and Dylan alone, that it is a performance, but it is not entertainment. The stage is his pulpit and lectern. He's not sermonizing, but there is a message there, possibly. Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of The Bobcats, the podcast where I talk to other Bob Dylan fans about their Bob Dylan fandom. I'm your host, Matt Steichen. I open the show with an excerpt from a blog post written by our guest today after he attended his 14th Dylan show in Prague in 2019. You can find him on Twitter at As Natural As Rain. Joining us from across the pond today in Glasgow, Scotland, James Crane. Hey, James, welcome to the Bobcats. Hey, man, how you doing? I am doing very well. Uh, I invited you on the show simply because I just thought that that blog post really uh, provided a unique perspective on what it's like to see Bob live at this stage in his career. And I thought it was really well-written and really captured it so well. So what was it? Well, first of all, do you have a background in writing at all? Or was it just that uh, experience of attending the show that made you want to write about it? Um, I, I guess a combination thing. So um, I, my background in writing is, is purely freelance. Um, so that's something I've moved towards over the last couple of years, um, kind of pursuing more creative uh, uh, output um but um yeah but in, in terms of bob himself you know I, I had no intention of going to the show and writing a, a, a blog on the back of it but but coming away from that from that show the first one i've seen for a couple of years it just blew me away and i thought this needs to be written down you know i need to express my feelings um so that's that's how it ended up as a, a fairly extended blog post but, yeah but thank you for your kind words it really captured what's unique about seeing Bob, I think, is that on the surface, it is a concert. He's a musician on a stage. He's playing songs. People are sitting in chairs and listening and watching. But yet there's this very strange, different dynamic. The relationship between the performer and the audience is completely different than what you would experience at most shows. So can you share with our listeners who haven't read the blog kind of some of what you experienced and your observations about that night? Yeah, sure. 
So, I mean, there's, there's, there's so many things to unpack, even even within talking, and you'll know this as well as anyone. Um, you know, a, a show could be spoken about in its own terms for for hours upon hours, but I, I will not take that that long to do it just now. Um, but the, the the show was fascinating. So you had this in, in original initial kind of dynamic of, you know, here's this kind of towering presence in in you know Western culture for the last however long you want to say, and. The fact that you can see him perform live and in person, to, to use his own phrase, to me is a wonderful thing. You know, the fact that we can still see him is a wonderful thing. And so, so you go kind of half knowing what to expect, but also in that kind of sense of, you know, this is still a very unique uh, situation. As well as that, you also have people, and, and again, this maybe speaks to our fandom and, and our kind of the way we're ensconced in this world. There's still many thousands of people who turn up to a Bob Dylan show expecting what they would expect if they went to see the Eagles or if they went to see the Rolling Stones. They're expecting fireworks. They're expecting uh, the greatest hits. They're expecting the big screen. And it, it's fascinating to me. This is a kind of already a, a diversion, but it's fascinating to me that these people kind of come to these shows almost not knowing, knowing that Dylan exists, but not knowing what he does in 2021 or 2019 is what's there. So you have this fascinating dynamic even within the audience of, of people like us who are going maybe for a you know, dozens of time. And then people who are turning up and, and they're eating their nachos and they've got the big kind of, you know, bottle of coke and they're like, oh, great, I can't wait to see Dylan. And then Dylan comes on stage and he just destroys every kind of, you know, perception, preconceived idea they have within about 30 seconds uh and even that in itself it's just like a fascinating drama that's playing out within the show i think it's, it's something about our culture that people just aren't put in situations very often where they don't get what they expect and they don't know how to handle it absolutely correct absolutely correct um and so that in itself is like a fascinating thing and then and then dylan as, as like i, I try to kind of uh, talk about it in, in the blog but as you said there he just does his own thing. And, and if, if you've been paying any attention for the last 60 years, this should not come as a surprise to you. You know, he comes on stage and he does his own thing. And if you enjoy it, that's great. But that's not the reason he's on stage. Um, so he comes on and he does his thing. And, and this is one of these things that people say to you, oh, well, that's just ridiculous. The fact that you can say the phrase, well, he might be interested that night, or he might not be interested that night, or he might do something good that night. And, and there's times, and again, you'll know this, when you've been to shows, and it's not been a great show, but there's been maybe a song or even a line within a song that has almost justified the whole experience. And, and, and it's impossible almost to explain that to someone that isn't, you know, uh, hasn't had that kind of Damascene conversion to the world of Dylan and all that kind of thing. Um, and certainly, I mean, that night in Prague, like I said, that, that's the first time I'd seen him for a couple of years. Um, he was mixing it up that night and he was doing that thing where, he, he, you know, obviously there's times where he likes to be part of the band. And then there's a couple of songs, I think it was Don't Think Twice and I think it was uh, like Rolling Stone as well, where it's essentially just him at the piano. And, and, and we know from the last couple of years, even the last couple of decades, he doesn't like to be in the spotlight, ironically enough, for who he is. And for me, that, you know, a couple of those songs that evening where he really exposed himself, you know, it was him, there was the piano, there was maybe Garnier playing a couple of notes on the bass, a couple of drum licks. And it was just astonishing. There was silence in the room and he was he was playing these songs and with the, 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 the bass piano, just, just the piano going on. Um, and as I said in that blog, you know, it was... 
to me, it was like listening to, you know, or reading the poetry of Philip Larkin or watching the films of Ingmar Bergman. They're really, really challenging, you know, really difficult. Uh, and if you're not ready for it, it's going to kind of take you by surprise and stuff. But if you're if you're prepared to kind of go in and, and go along for the ride, the experience is, is really quite phenomenal. Yeah. One thing that you said in that blog post that really struck me was when you said that he's not doing it as entertainment. And I didn't know if I agreed with that or not, because I personally am entertained, but I understand what you're saying, that it's not the typical way that people are used to receiving entertainment. As I've said in other episodes, I think a lot of people rely on familiarity when it comes to what they're entertained by. I would walk into a bar and just listen to a random person playing and take it on its own merits and see if I like it or not. But I know other people who would have no interest in going and seeing a musician that they don't know the songs of they, they, that would just be a non-starter for those people. So I think you need to have kind of that open-mindedness in the first place to kind of see Bob's performing for what it is and not let your expectations be completely paralyzing. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, and I, I, again, it's it, it's a strange thing, this kind of dynamic that exists with people who go along that aren't quite sure um, what to expect. But as we said, you know, Dylan, one one of my friends sort of coined this phrase. I think he's he's the least biddable artist you've ever known. He gives himself to absolutely no one but himself. Um, even from the very start, you know, he was absolutely uncompromising in what he did. And so the idea that any point along that path, you think, oh, maybe he's changed now. Maybe he's going to play twenty five of the greatest hits. I, I find that quite curious, you know, that you can that you can know who Dylan is and yet be so un, unprepared for what he's going to do, i.e. just what he wants to do. So I, I find that a kind of curious thing. But like you say, maybe that's a broader thing in terms of just society. You know, if we're not kind of spoon fed the thing we're expecting to receive, we're taken aback and we're shocked by that. And, and, and I think, as I kind of mentioned in that piece, you know, he really is uh, the only person that's doing that. You know, even even the great kind of, the people I, I I love apart from Dylan, you know, you think of like Leonard Cohen, or you know Paul McCartney. Actually, you know, is 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 great as well, and, and he has tried to do different things later in his career. But when you see them perform, you know, Cohen especially um, would just go through his songbook, you know, and you're thinking, well, there's no one else like Dylan. You know, there's no one else that's going. You know what? As you said, you know, the entertainment thing, it's tangential to him. If you're entertained, that's great. But he is on. His, his performance is essentially part of this great odyssey that is his life. It's like, what am I going to do tonight? I don't know, but I'm going to walk down that path regardless, and I'm going to see where I am at the end of it. And if you enjoy that, great, good for you. But this isn't about you, this is about me. And that's, that's the joy of Bob, that his life is essentially this odyssey of exploration and creation. And, and that's, I guess that's why we're here, you know, to talk about him, because we find it so fascinating. It is a very bold and brave choice to continue to pursue your life as an entertainer in that way. Uh, you talked about the magic of seeing those kind of almost solo piano performances on the 2019 tour. And I think what's interesting is that Bob originally presented himself as a solo acoustic entertainer, but as soon as he could afford a band, he pretty much abandoned that. And he's only played a solo with harmonica and guitar a couple times, you know, in the last 30 years. I think even the way he promotes his shows and stuff as Bob Dylan and his, and his band, I think he's proud to present himself as a band leader. So when he played those piano versions in 2019, that was about as raw 
you know, unfiltered Bob Dylan as he's given fans in the last 30 years, because you could literally hear the decisions he was making on, on the vocals and the little piano fills. It was just Bob and everything else was pushed to the side. So that made it really remarkable to watch. Yeah, I think so. I think I, I was watching and <laughs> for anyone else, this would sound like a lot of inside baseball, but this is, uh, I'm sure you'll, you'll know this. I think it was the 1995 shows. I was watching some of the 1995 shows recently and that was the last time I could, I could recall him um, performing. So it was a couple of, certainly on the European tour, the majority of the shows are him with the microphone at the front of the stage and just singing. And it's bizarre because he's almost like a lounge singer in this, you know, he's like completely removed from what we see now. And that's the last time I can I can really uh, I'm, I'm aware that he did that. And that's 25 years ago, and like you say, and even now, when he does interviews and and when he does, you know, just anything, the Nobel Nobel Prize, um, so everything around that, it was so carefully managed. Again, it's this kind of b- bizarre kind of contradiction that he's so individualistic, and almost even now at 79 years old afraid to to fully give himself you know to fully kind of let himself go so the interviews he do he does are always either with jeff rosen or someone that he's picked and picked to interview him it's like he he's so cautious and i don't know if it's because he was burned back in the day so yeah so to the point about the show those occasions where you feel like he's actually kind of coming out of his shell and opening up to you i don't know to me they're just you know they're electrifying so so yeah it it was a great night you said you went to your first show in 2007. So you'd heard Bob, I think several years before that you said, but what was it that kind of, kind of finally gave you that push to get out the door and go see what he was doing live? Um, so a couple of factors. So, I, I mean, I, even, even within that, I, I was even later to it than, um, than you said there. So my first kind of, my first kind of taste of him, like original kind of taste of him, in, in, in the 90s, the music I was listening to, um, kind of 90s kind of British music, a lot of that was influenced by uh, the Beatles and the Stones and the Kinks. And so I listened to maybe, you know, a lot of kind of 60s compilations back in the day. And so you'd hear, you know, the usual suspects, you know, Blown in the Wind and Mr. Tambourine Man. So I'd heard him back then. And I don't know, for whatever reason, I guess I kind of led more of an inch of life back then. I didn't really, I didn't really take to him. He didn't get my, his claws in me back then. So... I didn't get into it then. And then in about 2001, 2002, one of my friends lent me Time Out of Mind. And that was the first time I'd properly kind of listened to his music. And you know, I kind of, I'm going to listen to Bob Dylan as opposed to I'm going to list him as part of the 60s compilation. And that was, that was fantastic. But there, there was a kind of couple of stages beyond that. So I, I'd gone to university in 2002, I think it was, and ended up doing a postgrad degree in... American studies, which is about as useful as it, <laughs> as it sounds, you know, it really served me well in life. It was at that point that kind of world opened up to me. I've been quite a, I'd grown up in a small town and I'd not really seen the world outside of, I guess, the UK at that stage. And then I'd gone to university in the classic style and then started reading Steinbeck and learning about Woody Guthrie and all that kind of stuff. And then I visited the US for the first time. And then all these things kind of coalesced. So I think Chronicles came out in maybe 2004. And that was just as I was getting into the kind of American side of the my studies. And then that world just opened up. And, and, and so from there, um, you know, Modern Times comes out in 2006. And, and, and before that, I've kind of gone into, you know, Hank Williams and the kind of Americana route and all that kind of thing. By 2006, 
the Dylan thing really gets hold of me. I, I kind of get Dylan for the first time. And, and having done that, it's like, what the hell have you been waiting for in your life? Let's go and see this guy. So 2007 was the first time, I think it was May 2007 was the first time he toured the UK after I'd had that moment of, uh, of realization that this, this guy was worth looking into, I guess. So what are your observations of Bob as a live performer since then? I know that I, when I saw a bunch of shows in 2006 and seven, I thought they were really good. But I would argue that the shows I saw in 2019 were just as good, if not better, which is crazy to think that in 10 years, he's maybe even gotten even better as a performer. And I remember in the Rome interview in 2001, a reporter asked him, do you think you could get better? And I thought, oh, that's a very interesting, strange question. I never thought of what Bob Dylan does as something that he would would like try to get better at or that he could get better at it. But, you know, in 2001, he was only 60. So I guess he had a lot of experience still to be gained. And maybe in the last 20 years, he's somehow gotten better. So what's been your observations of what you've seen on the stage or uh, live over that period? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think maybe that lends itself to the, the thing we said earlier on, you know, about the comparison with his with his peers, you know, so the Rolling Stones famously still think they're 21, you know, and they don't, they, they refuse to let that go. And they still want to go on stage and Jagger wants to gyrate his hips and all that kind of stuff. Whereas Bob, again, sort of follows that different path. So on that, the Modern Times tour, as you said yourself, maybe this is recency bias, I don't know, but I think there's something to it. And the Modern Times tour... I, I, I remember we did two or three songs at the start of the show on guitar and then quite literally he kind of removed himself into this kind of horseshoe shape, which was with the band. And, and he, it was a very, obviously a very conscious thing to do. You know, he saw himself as part of the band and not Bob Dylan being the superstar. He was part of this band who who played this music. And and, and again, the first time I saw him, that was, that was fascinating to me because I guess that was the point where I was quite naive and not knowing what to expect. You go in and go, well, hold on a second, this guy, I've been told this guy is, you know, the greatest uh, living songwriter um, and the, one of the greatest sort of cultural figures of our time. And he seems to have no confidence in what he's doing. He's disappearing into the in, into the crowd. So that that, that was fascinating. And, and those shows were, were good in the sense of they were fun, enjoyable shows, and I really enjoyed Modern Times as an album. But I don't think they were, you, you can kind of you can parcel off kind of parts of his kind of the never ending tour, especially of the eras where he's into it and the eras where he's not quite into it. And I think 2007 around that, that was the kind of post Larry Campbell, uh, Charlie Sexton, where he was properly into it, you know, like 2001 to 2004, 2005, he was having the time of his life, I think on stage. And then you have a couple of years after that, where he kind of retreats, and I think as the years have gone on, he's kind of come back into it again. And in 2019, he felt properly connected to the music. So he was he was reinterpreting the songs. So he had like um, Trying to Get to Heaven, which is kind of more upbeat. It's got kind of Eagles, Glenn Frey influence. You've got um, It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry. It's really kind of Chicago bluesy kind of swamp influence. So you can tell, it's almost like these are the kind of signifiers. You can tell when he's interested because he's messing around with the songs and he's doing something different. And just the vocal performance, you know, I was listening to a couple of the shows from 2019 um, and that run he did in New York and it's the end of the year. He's so invested in the shows and his voice is as good as, as, as I've heard for a long time. So yeah, so it, it's interesting, even within that kind of small, that small time frame that I've seen in those kind of whatever, 12 years, 13 years, 
even with that, there's so many undulations um, of what to expect from him. But but yeah, 2019 I thought was a really strong a strong year for the tour. I don't. I, you said you've seen him a couple of times. I don't. I don't know what your feelings were. 2019. I've said several times that they were my favorite shows since 2006. Yeah. And as you said, anybody that does anything almost on a nightly basis for that long a period of time, your mo- level of motivation and commitment is bound to have ebbs and flows. But the shows I saw in 2006 were outstanding. And then in 2014, when he started doing like the theater style set, I thought was a real peak when he started singing, stay with me yeah. and at the end of each show. And then 2019 was right on par with those shows for me. So talking about what uh, motivates Bob, the different levels of motivation that you can, can experience when you're doing something every single night like that. A lot of it comes down to, I'm sure what mood Bob is in, how creative he's feeling. And then every other, you know, there's so many other little factors, what kind of venue he's in and what kind of crowd response he's getting. And I think that's one thing that's really fun about being up front at a Bob show is you almost feel like or this used to really be the case when I started going to shows about 20 years ago, that you could almost control the momentum of the show. If you were with a group of people that was enthusiastic in the very front, Bob doesn't seek that kind of engagement from the crowd, but sometimes if you give him enough of it, he really feeds off of it and you can tell that he responds to it. And which directly leads me to the famous Borrowland show in 2004 probably not far from where you are now. It's one of the standout shows of the never ending tour. And one of the bootlegs I've listened to so many times over the years, Uh, were you aware that Bob was in Scotland at that time? And did you hear from people around there, you know, how crazy of a show that was in 2004? Sadly, no, it's one of my great regrets. Um, And then really you can't do anything about it. So you shouldn't worry about it too much, but I was actually, I was actually in New York at the time Um, that, that that show was playing and, and, this was kind of just the, the kind of start of my awareness of the fact that um, the Bob was still. <laughs> it's a funny thing when I when, when I was thinking about this just earlier on. A kind of instructive anecdote: the, the first show I saw in Glasgow, two thousand seven. Uh, one of my friends that I, I I got to know at university. I was in the taxi on the way to the show, and he phoned me up and he said, uh, "Me and a few guys are going out for beers tonight. Uh, do you want to come?" And I was like, "Oh, actually, I'm 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 on my way to see Bob Dylan." And he said, well, "Bob Dylan's still alive." What, 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 what? <laughs> And it kind of gave me that insight of, right, oh, yeah, actually, you know, there's people out there that just don't know that he's still a thing. Uh, I guess I was part of that, you know, to to some degree. And in 2004, I kind of knew that he was doing stuff, but but not to the degree that he was touring. And so, yeah, so that week that he played in, in, in Scotland... Um, yeah, I was, I was, I was, I was on a holiday in New York, which is again, tangential to the story, but it was only years after that I heard and I spoke to people who'd been at the show and again, just kind of spoke of it with this kind of religious reverence. Um, and, and, and like yourself, you know, I've listened to the bootleg so many times and, and it actually, you know, it absolutely feeds into your point there that he does, you know, for, for all we think that he's kind of this, this miserable, grumpy old man that goes on stage and just does his thing and walks off and gets no pleasure out of it. The occasions like this where the crowd are properly into uh, the event, he, he, he comes to life, you know, he springs to life. And it's such a weird, so I don't know if you know much about the kind of history of the place. So the, the venue itself is, is, is kind of famous amongst kind of musicians and fans, I guess, as well. If you ever Google, you know, um, Glasgow Barrowlands, uh, you know, opinions or reviews. There's dozens, if not hundreds of bands who will say this was my favorite ever gig because it's, it's this really old kind of rickety old ballroom 
low ceiling, kind of bouncy, sticky floors, all that kind of thing, holds maybe 2,000 people. And it is famed within the UK and, and probably wider than that for being just this incredibly atmospheric and fairly raucous kind of a, a venue. You know, it's it, it, like I say, it's, it's, it's kind of falling to pieces. It's in the really kind of rough part of town, all this kind of stuff. And I still don't quite know what uh, I'm assuming that kind of Bob heard about this because he played, he played his kind of normal gig the night before in one of the kind of arenas, you know, one of the soulless arenas that he was doing at that time. So I, I don't know the kind of genesis of how he came to play the show, but he did. And in classic style, he's never been back, you know, even though it's the, the home of one of this kind of legendary performances in, in classic Bob style, he's gone, well, I've done it now. Why would I go back and do it again? Which is the story of his career, I guess, you know? So yeah, it's, 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 I, I would recommend highly anyone that's not heard that, um, that bootleg to go and go and seek it out because I think there's even videos still on YouTube, which again are incredible. You can just kind of feel the electricity in the air. So yeah, uh, just an incredible show. That's one of the bootlegs I go, you know, return to again and again, and speaks to Bob's approach to what he does live, that there's certain shows I'll go back to from 2013, where there's nothing else particularly great about them. But I know that that's the one show where the levy is going to break is fantastic. And it's like, if you went and saw a different act, you'd expect to get something similar every single time. And yet on a given night, if Bob, you know, was in just the right mood and he just finds a riff that he really likes, all of a sudden Levy's going to break will be great that night. So mm-hmm. I, I really love, you know, digging into the bootleg pile and finding those kind of moments like that. Yeah, it's that kind of jazz sensibility. You know, you kind of go searching for the riff and you go searching for the kind of uh, the groove, you know. Uh, yeah. And, and, and. I guess that's the kind of gamble you take, you know, it's not going to always work out. Uh, and, and everyone's got their own kind of uh, horror story of, of the night they went. And he, and he literally did just grumble his way through two hours of nonsense. But on the plus side, you know, if, if you do get him on a good night, he, he is, he is quite like no one else. Uh, and, and like you say, that was, uh, there are, it, it's strange, like you say, and it speaks to the nature of what he does. You can, you have, you have dates and you have years where you know it's only just one song and and but but to me and to you it just justifies the whole show and and yeah and it's a strange thing because if someone told me that about someone else i'd just be saying well, what are you doing wasting your money on that you know you know <laughs> you're going to spend whatever like a hundred dollars on this thing that's going to last for two hours and if you're lucky you're going to get three and a half minutes of pleasure you know <laughs> it's like well why the hell are you doing that i i will admit it's completely illogical at times but i can't help myself uh, when we were getting ready for the show i told you uh, i wanted to throw this theory out at you. Feel free to debunk it. Uh, Over the years, uh, you're my first guest from Europe. So I want to ask you, do European audiences appreciate Bob more than American audiences? I know that like when Street Legal came out, it was really rejected in the United States. And yet it had like charting singles in the UK. And there's been other albums over the years that have charted better in the UK. And he draws some really big crowds over there and had, you know, legendary runs like London and Paris expecting rain is uh, in Europe and ISIS magazine is in Europe. So do you find as someone who's been in the United States and, and been over there that Bob has a particularly like strong audience in, in Europe? So I think there's a couple of aspects to this. So I, I think the first one is is geographical. The, my feeling is geographical. So I think just the the concentration of fans in Europe. So you know you can get on a plane in London, and within a couple of hours you could be in you know uh, Berlin, Madrid, Barcelona, Rome, uh, 
Paris, you know, name, name your place, you know. So you've got this concentration of these major cities with strong cultural, intellectual legacies, uh, and they're all full of millions of people. Um, so to me, it's no surprise that within those millions of people, within those cities, there is a strong kind of, you know, fandom for, for Bob. So, and, and I, 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 just geographically, that doesn't, isn't represented in the United States. You're right. I, I think it's the exact opposite here, yeah. that we are very spread out with very separate metro areas. So like... I'm in the Midwest where there's a few big cities, but there's also a bunch of wide open space. So we will go to one show an hour from where I live and Bob will draw 9,000 people. And then we will drive three hours South and he can't get 2000 in the venue. Mm -hmm. And for someone of Bob's legendary status, anytime I go into a venue, that's 2,500 seats and you can tell that it's not sold out. It's just shocking to me, but I guess that's the reality. Yeah, I, and I think I think it's, it, it is just a geographical thing, and it feels as though Europe is, um, or it maybe feels to someone like yourself that it, he's more popular in Europe. But it, it simply is because if you had all those major cities congregating in a very small space in the US, you'd be going, "Oh, well, that makes more sense." So I think there's a geographical thing. But the other thing as well, I was, I was kind of thinking about this when you asked me. I think I, I do think there is what would you call it a sense of ownership, maybe. So. Because so many places in Europe, or the major kind of cities in Europe, or the kind of cultural figures in Europe, have influenced Bob over the years, I don't know if maybe the fans within these countries have that kind of sense of ownership. So I was thinking, you know, you go across Europe and you've got, you know, the Greek poets and the Greek myths, you've got Rambo and Matisse, you know, people that have famously influenced his work in France. You've got Shakespeare in England. You've got, you know, I'm, I'm 25 miles from the birthplace of Robert Burns, who, you know, Bob famously said was the single greatest influence in his songwriting. Um, you've got Ireland, you've got, you know, the folk music of Ireland and Scotland. You've got Joyce and Bean and, and, and Yeats in Ireland. Um, so, each country in Europe almost had like a, a personal connection to Bob's development or story. So I don't know if within Europe there's that kind of sense of, well, you know, part of Bob's story is part of my story because because our literature and my nation's literature is part of Bob's um, development. And when you compare that to the US, I guess, you've also got New York, you've got Minnesota, you've maybe got Oklahoma at a push, you know, Steinbeck and Woody Guthrie and all that kind of thing. But there's not a comparable kind of sense of geographical attachment to Bob's story in the same way that Europe has these obvious pinpoints where you say, this is what influenced him here. You know, Shakespeare influenced this. T.S. Eliot influenced this. Uh, Rambo influenced this. And with the U.S., it's very much, well, it's Guthrie and it's the beat poets. And then he just goes off on his own. So there's no kind of geographical kind of so symbiosis between Dylan and, and America in the way that there is famously with these kind of points across Europe. So I don't, I, I, like I say, that's just kind of, I was kind of off the, off the top of my head that kind of came to, to my, uh, came to my, my thoughts, but. Um, that's really interesting. I've never yeah. thought of it in those terms, but he really does have those different connections to all those different regions of Europe. That's really interesting. Yeah. So yeah, whether there's something to that, I don't know, but do you feel pure, because I, I, was, I was reading on your Twitter and stuff and you were saying, how you were kind of going into schools in Minnesota and like half the class didn't know who Bob Dylan was. And again, this is, I, this is where I, I recognize my kind of old man status, but it's like, well, yeah, I suppose why would a seven year old know who Bob Dylan is? But at the same time, it's like, well, 
who else would someone from Minnesota know as like a historical cultural figure? Um, so what, yeah, what, what was your sort of experience of that? Do you feel like he's just underrepresented in, in um, the US? Yeah, I think that's why I put myself out there as somebody who's willing to come talk to classes about that sort of thing, because it is really surprising to me. I coach a softball team and one of the other assistant coaches, we just got to talking on a bus ride the other day. And she said, not only did she not know who Bob Dylan was, she'd never even heard the name Bob Dylan before. And I said, like, have you heard of Shakespeare before? Have you heard of Martin Luther King Jr. before? Like, you really have never heard the name Bob Dylan has never crossed your radar in your entire life. And yeah, I think that is a reality. I think uh, probably as technology further and further advances and we get further and further away from these moments in history. And I think people have less interest in what came before them now than they Mm -hmm. used to which maybe that's me being a really old, grumpy 37-year-old. But it does seem like when I was a kid, I was interested in what happened in the 60s and the culture and music of the 60s, and that was 30 years before. And yet now I don't think that kids think about, oh, I wonder who was popular in the 1990s. So especially not the 1960s or 70s. That's So it's one of those, and I I can't remember where I read it, but and I suppose – Dylan has that kind of aspect to his his um, his development as well. So that kind of if you were if you were twenty one in you know in nineteen sixty two or whatever you know whatever age Dylan was, you know part of his thing was and this is just a generational thing I suppose, you know part of his thing was saying well actually the music of the thirties really isn't interesting to me. You know, I'm all about listening to Little Richard. I'm all about listening to Buddy Holly. Um, so I guess every, you know, every generation does have that kind of rebellion against the thing that came for their parents and all that kind of stuff. Although, you know, ironically, eventually he comes back to the music of the 1930s and Cole Porter and, you know, Rodgers and Hamstein, all those kind of people. So it, it's not as clear cut as that. But I mean, I, I guess technology is a thing to to a degree because, you know, when we were growing up, it was just kind of textbooks and what you saw on the, you know, six channels on the TV. Whereas now, obviously, there's this kind of disparate kind of form of, um, you know, you get your information from a dozen different sources as opposed to the one or two that we got when we were growing up. But yeah, I, I, I suppose the kind of contrary opinion to that would be we're still talking about Shakespeare 500 years on. So you know, Dylan's still got a chance. If we're still talking about Shakespeare, time time will tell. And I guess the the wheat from the chaff will be will be separated, you know. My general approach was that I wasn't going to get them to be obsessed with Bob Dylan in 45 minutes. So it was more like a very general who is Bob Dylan, because eventually you are going to hear him referenced or someone's going to say uh, so-and-so went electric or, you know, the answer's blown in the wind or the times they are changing. And you're going to hear his name one way or another in your life at some point. So let's at least be from Minnesota. You should at least be able to give me a, a brief explanation of who Bob Dylan is. So hopefully the ones that didn't have headphones on heard that. <laughs> <laughs> if you planted the seed in one of the kids, your work is done, you know, uh, you know, and, and 30 years from now, that kid will be going to their school and be like, what do you mean? You kids don't know who Bob Dylan is. <laughs> I told myself that as I was leaving, hopefully I got through to one kid. Uh, so you mentioned uh, your first uh, time getting exposed to sort of modern Bob when you found time out of mind. Tell me about how how did that happen that you ended up exposed to time out of mind? And then how, was it a natural progression from uh, the Smiths and the other kind of stuff that you were listening to? Or did it seem like it was from another planet compared to that stuff? I mean, it was purely fortuitous. I mean, I, I guess he's one of those guys that the, the way that the sort of direction that 
kind of my life was going and going to university and all that kind of stuff, I would have naturally been exposed to his work eventually at some point. But yeah, I, uh, my, my very first kind of um, experience was quite literally borrowing a CD off one of my friends. I'd seen the CD in his, you know, CD rack again. I'm, I'm, I'm carbon dating my age at this point, but I had gone through his CD rack and said, oh, you know, how's this? And he's like, oh, yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Take it away and listen to it if you want. And at that time, I'd, yeah, I'd been listening to a lot of kind of 90s British music. Um, my my worldview was was not very developed. I was quite insular. So I was listening to mostly kind of British bands. And their sound, you know, the kind of, like say, the, you know, Blur and Oasis in the 90s and before that, you know, the Stones and the Beatles and the Smiths. I, you know, I loved the Smiths growing up. But a lot of the kind of rock music was very, very bombastic and very expressive and very, you know, loud and in your face. And then putting on that... A CD of Time Out of Mind was just like, whoa, what's what's going on here? You know, it's it's almost apologetic. You know, this kind of shimmering introduction from from Lovesick, the first song, and then you know, as I said, this, this kind of this swamp monster appears. You know, this kind of garbled. I'm walking through streets that are dead, and you're like, oh, okay. Well, I've not heard this before. No, I, I it's I got it the same time that I got desire and bringing it all back home. It was one of those first holidays after I was getting into it. And I just got a pile of CDs. And I remember when I put on Time Out of Mind, I had no idea what to make of it. It was so different sonically. It sounded like it sounded new and modern and yet old at the same time. And he sounded so spooky and depressed. I was like, you know, I don't think I'm ready for this one yet. And I put it to the side for a while. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's a classic case of, um, you know, if you said to someone, you know, uh, here's a Bob Dylan CD, you know, 99% of people have this preconceived notion of what he is. And even, even kind of, I don't know, more recently, he's probably, you know, rough and rowdy ways is, and it's not a pejorative description, it's more accessible. You know, Rough and Rowdy Rays is far more accessible than even something like Tempest or something like Time Out of Mind. So it's, you know, with, within the, the Dylan realm, you have these albums that are hugely popular amongst fans and yet are still very difficult to get into. You know, they're difficult for fans to get into, let alone people who don't know what he's, you know, what he's doing. So yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think for me, it was just one of those kind of things where everything kind of coalesces. Um, like saying, it was just like, oh, this is interesting. And it was, I, I don't know if it's Dylan himself or someone else that described it as a night album. It's like, it, it is very much a night album. You know, it's really kind of low key and it's very kind of dark in places. And it's kind of just, it's almost like a come down album in a way, you know, it's, you can put it on at three in the morning and just be like, okay, I'm going to listen to this for the next hour. And it just kind of, it puts you in the zone. So yeah, it was like, I, I, I I'm I'm not sure that many people would have had, you know, that album is the one that got them into it. But for me, for whatever reason, the time was right. And I just kind of got into it and it was like, oh, wow. Okay. And and, and from there, you know, the kind of whole world opened up to, to his other material, you know, and, and, and again, the kids will go, well, what do you mean by this? But I mean, I, I didn't have a great deal of money at the time, so it was a, a, a case of going to the local library and going, oh, can you order me in some Bob Dylan CDs or can you order me in these books by the authors that he mentioned in, in some of his songs and all that kind of stuff? And, and it, was, it, was, it was definitely kind of, what do you want to call it, kind of delayed gratification. You know, you couldn't just go on Spotify and download all the songs and you couldn't just go on Wikipedia and get all the, the references. 
it took a week or two for the books to come in and then you take the time to read the books and all this kind of stuff. So yeah, it was a, it was, it was delayed gratification and it was, I don't know, I'm going into kind of grandpa Simpson mode, but it was, yeah, it was better for it. I think it was, you, you, t- you took your time with it. You know, you really, it, it seeped into you as opposed to just kind of one after the other, you know? So it was, yeah, it was, it was good times. Yeah. Eventually I was ready for it and I went back to time out of mind. And what struck me about it was, how vulnerable and straightforward it was compared to the other albums. Uh, you didn't get lost in a sea of like abstract imagery. It was just like, even if the flesh falls off my face, I know someone will be there to care. And it's like, Oh, the veils that he puts on and the masks he puts on on some other albums to varying degrees. There's no mask here. This guy's just old and depressed and he's putting it right there on the record for us to hear. Oh, completely. I mean, it was, yeah, I think that was the thing. It was so disarming. And I think, you know, I, I kind of, when I've talked about Bob as well, so previously you have these kind of periods. So you have, the, you know, the early period of Bob is where he's, he's taking a stand and he's talking about politics and he's talking about society. And then he kind of moves on into the abstract. And at that point, he's just talking about, you know, maybe the human experience. Um, but very rarely does he talk about himself, you know, so famously like blood in the tracks, that kind of thing where he, he opens up, but it is a very rare thing. So kind of whatever it is, 22 years on from blood in the tracks, maybe for the first time, maybe the Christian stuff, but for the first time he's talking about his life. So it is like, say the flesh falling off my face. It's uh, I'm trying to get to heaven before they close the door. You know, it's not dark yet, but it's getting there. He's really kind of laying it on the line in a way that, you know, we're not expecting from him anymore. You know, he is so guarded and he is so abstract for 99% of the time. So when he comes in from the side and goes, oh, by the way, guys, this is what I'm feeling. You're like, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. And he does it in such, you know, beautiful language and poetic language, you know, so it's not only that he kind of knocks you off your stride, he, he does it in a way that's so beautiful and, and, and so heartfelt that you can't help but lose yourself into it. You know, it's, 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 it's incredible material. And uh, for the show, I asked you to submit a top five favorite mm-hmm. Bob Dylan songs and everyone I've ever asked to do that, you know, the same complaint how could i possibly pick five but one of the ones that you did put was standing in the doorway and i think that's a top 10 song for me as well uh and also very underappreciated when people talk about the great modern bob dylan songs i'm sure there are a lot of you know really hardcore fans that would acknowledge that song's greatness but to me it is one of his perfect songs like i threw it all away or one of those songs where there'd be there's no fat on it i wouldn't change a word of it and it's just completely flawless yeah but i, I, I yeah I, I use that analogy quite a lot there's maybe no such thing as a perfect song but there's such thing as a flawless song and that's a flawless song you know it's 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 it, it, it's again it's like the lyrics are almost disarming because you have this kind of swooning uh rhythm behind the song so you know if you if you're not careful you probably think this is some kind of like ballroom ballad or something uh and then within that you, he, again he's just he's, he's exposing himself in a way that you just aren't expecting to hear um but yeah, standing in the doorway just just blows me away, and 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 in the classic style, you know, he's then reinterpreted that on stage with some incredible performances because it is such a heartfelt song. You know that when he's singing it on stage, he's not leaving anything out there. He's going to give his all to it. You know, it's one of those songs that you never hear a bad performance of. He just he throws himself into it because I, I think he recognizes, you know, the power of of that song. So yeah. And, and, and that, I mean, that's a classic example as well of when they talk about the poetry of Bob. It's like, well, he's not a poet because poetry only exists in words. 
Bob's words come alive on the stage in a way that poetry doesn't. And, and, and that's, that, that's where Bob is a musician, is an artist, because he, he expands these kind of songs into performances, which, which again, are just an absolute privilege to, to see in person, you know. So the timing at which you were kind of digging into the back catalog, as you started to say before, uh, what kind of impact did the internet have on that? Because it, it, it was early 2000s and it was kind of the same time period where I was just starting to uncover everything, but it was before you could pull every single song up one at a time. It was the era of Napster and burning CDs and stuff. How did the uh, access to the internet impact that early fandom of yours as you were uncovering everything? I, I, I don't think I would have been... On, on YouTube so much back then. I think it was probably discovering maybe some fan sites or maybe uh, people that were selling CDs of bootlegs and all that kind of thing. So again, at that point, I, I had no real understanding of, of, of just what was out there. And so even discovering people that were prepared to send you DVDs or, or CDs of performances, to me, that was mind-blowing, you know, that you could get these kind of, you know, time capsules almost. Again, it's, it, it, it's weird to look back because we have such access to everything that existed that's on, on video is now on YouTube. Back in 2005 2006 it was a real struggle you know it was a real struggle to get hold of things if you didn't know anyone that was into this it was a struggle to get hold of it so between that i think that was maybe the first time i kind of got hold of isis magazine so my my, my local bookstore starts uh you know stocking isis magazine so i got a hold of that and you get the back pages of that you know the classifieds and you'd find out people who were like say making cds available that kind of thing so still, even in 2006, even though, you know, the internet was obviously, you know, uh, fully formed by then, it was still um, not the kind of free-for-all that it is today where you can pretty much find anything. Um, so you start to put in the hard yards, I think, to, to get hold of what you're after. But as the years have gone on, you know, obviously it's become just this absolute treasure trove of, of performances and, and information. Yeah, that you said 2005. And that reminded me that I started dating my wife in 2005. And it was like, I had a DVD of a bunch of Bob's live TV performances from like 2005. And those were not on YouTube yet. So unless you got an old VHS from a trader, you could not access, you couldn't go see him play Restless Farewell for Frank Sinatra in 1995. That didn't exist anywhere except on you know, the few guys that had VHS tapes or whatever. So the fact that I had those on DVD, she was like really impressed. And like, you know, we, would, we wouldn't watch movies together. We would just sit and watch Bob Dylan DVDs. It, and I remember then it wasn't until 2007 or 2008, which unfortunately for her was a year after she married me. So then she was in, but in a, I think it was 2008, somebody posted like a high definition close-up video of Bob's face singing spirit on the water. And it was like the first time anybody got a really high quality live video up close, like from the rail. And that, that was like a game changer. It was like, Oh, this, this uh, amazing thing that we're experiencing in these, you know, old halls and arenas where there's no screens and it bobs in the dark and you can't see him that well, even if you have a good seat, like now all of a sudden these uh, performances, Bob's doing all over the world. You can see what he did in Prague last night, the next day in Minnesota. It really was a game changer. I, yeah, I, I, you're, you're kind of jogging my memory now because, yeah, around that time, the 2006, I think a guy a, a guy I used to go to uh, watch, uh, go to the football when I sat next to him uh, 
and he he gave me, a, I think it was a DVD again. It sounds very similar to what you said there. So maybe it was this kind of, this uh, this golden disc that just kind of circulated the planet. So yeah, he gave me a copy of um, that and it had like the Hard Rain 77, 76 uh, performances and it had a couple of other things from maybe... Mine was maybe, called Through the Years, Volume 1 and 2. Oh, was it called that? I, I don't remember. Yeah, but it was. It was like, it was almost this kind of covert thing, you know, you kind of... Um, you know, the, the equivalent of drawing a fish on the back of uh, your <laughs> your jacket is someone's like, yeah, I'm one of you guys, you know, and then suddenly they'll, they'll put all this kind of material your way. But yeah, it's fascinating stuff when you look back, how, how difficult it was in comparison to today. Yeah. And uh, were you in the Rec Music Dylan group back in the day? I would, I guess that would have been late nineties. And then everyone sort of uh, transitioned over to the Dylan pool when that became really active where you guessed the songs and they had a message board. And then for a while, BobDylan.com had a discussion board. I don't know if you remember that, but that got so ugly so fast and so corrosive that Bob's people got rid of it forever. And then everybody migrated to expecting rain and then finally to Twitter and Facebook. So yeah, expecting rain was my first, I, I, I think I was maybe on the Yahoo page at one stage. I think I was, I was on one for, um, for John Prine, I think I, I think I was on a John Prine one, and then someone mentioned a Bob Dylan one. I was like, "Oh, I'll go, I'll go and try that." But yeah, that's that's, that's quite funny about the corrosive uh, the corrosive message boards kind of preempting Twitter and Facebook by twenty years. You know, it's like this is what's going to happen to all your uh, message boards. It's going to come like this. You know, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, maybe two, yeah. Expecting Rain was the first one that I properly interacted with people um, and chatted to people and they were like, oh, have you tried this? Or, I mean, they're obviously great at posting links to video and, and audio. So that was my first kind of step into that kind of realm. Yeah, it was nice just to have access to all the information you could get immediately. But the other thing is what I find odd is the gratification and the bonding that you get from like-minded people on the internet that you'll never meet. It it almost seems antithetical that it would fulfill some sort of need to like bond with people. Like I post something about Bob and a bunch of people give it likes and shares, and I'm never going to see those people smile when they see it. And yet I get some sort of gratification knowing that people on the other side of the world are like enjoying my Bob Dylan content and that we're sort of indirectly bonding over it. So I find that to be a very strange thing. Well, yeah, I mean, maybe it's because we're we're just so um, we're so broken by the modern age. You know, that kind of basic human instinct of being nice to another human has been has been removed so much from society. It's like, oh yeah, I forgot actually. There is some intrinsic value in making another human being happy. I'd forgotten that was the thing. You know, <laughs> so so yeah, I, I completely agree. There's this kind of. Um, I've only really followed you over the last couple of years on, on Twitter. Um, you know, we, we have no kind of prior kind of relationship or anything like that. Um, so, you know, this is a perfect exemplar of that. You know, it's like I followed you on Twitter. I, I started listening to your podcast and it's like, oh, well, would you fancy talking? And, and, and this thing has happened now. And it's like, again, you, you forget that the Internet can be for good and it can bring people together. And, you know, we would have, you know, maybe one percent chance of ever meeting in real life, maybe at a show or something. But because of the the wonder of this community, we're here chatting about you know our shared kind of interests, and I, I yeah, it, it, it's easy to forget that there's um there's good to be had from social media and all that kind of thing. Yeah, as my previous guest Jesse Meal said, I can talk about some things to you that I can't talk about with my best friends that I've known my whole life. That's absolutely right, and I I, I, I so I listened I listened to uh, to Jesse's podcast last week, um, and there were so many things in there that kind of resonated with me. I, even even to that point, you know, I 
I'd say two or three of the 14 shows that I've been to have been with other people. The rest I've gone alone because number one, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't feel anyone is as much of a nerd as I am uh, and can't appreciate it as much as I can. So I will go on my own. Uh, and so I don't have to worry about going, Oh, are you okay? Do you want me to go and get you a drink? Are you okay? Blah, blah, blah. Because I know that the majority of people um, will go and go, what the hell is this? Why is he not singing his famous song? Well, you know, why is he grumbling? Blah, 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 blah. And so after having done that the first couple of times, I've gone, you know what? I'm just going to go on my own. I'm going to enjoy it myself. And you maybe speak to a couple of people at the show. You maybe just chat to someone at the bar, that kind of thing. But, I, but I've never had that shared experience live at the show um i've only ever had that kind of experience afterwards when i've gone online or i've gone on twitter or like someone like this where i've gone oh blah blah you know did you go to this and yeah blah blah so it's interesting how that facilitates something that otherwise i wouldn't do um so so yeah it, 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 it's, it's a great thing i think and when i have this conversation with different fans i notice that bob dylan fans are obsessive but they're also uh, open to other music. So maybe that defies a stereotype. You, you have other musical interests. Jesse had other musical interests. And, and most of my people I have conversations with talk about different musicians they're interested in. So that kind of leads me to my last question. What do you think it is about Bob that makes him connect with you in ways that other musicians don't? I guess, I guess there's kind of two facets to this. So, I mean, the first one is the obvious one, which is... I, I do think his music is is unique and it stands above anything else that I listen to. In terms, you know, in terms of the lyrics, the connection of the lyrics, I think back to you know, it's all right, Mars, the song that I, I always come back to. So you've got the you know the, the the timelessness of the lyrics. So you know, whatever you want to say, advertising signs a con, you and thinking you're the one. That you know, if you ask the foremost cultural critic of the day to write 10,000 words about the Facebook generation or the, you know, the Instagram generation, they wouldn't write anything half as perceptive as the couplet advertising signs of Khan, you thinking you're the one. That's what that is. In the same way as it describes the MTV generation, in the same way it describes the TV dinners generation, you know, history almost bends towards lyrics within songs like this. They're just phenomenal. You know, you have that, you have things like, I mean, you know, toy guns that spark and flesh colored grass that glow in the dark. That's, you know, that's the trivialization of violence. That's the, the way we make a novelty of violence, the way we make a novelty of religion. You know, that's um, that's Trump on the steps of a church with, with, a, with a Bible. That's, you know, that's video games, outcries about violence in video games. Whatever generation you look at, you know, Bob is just nailing down the cranks and the charlatans uh, and he's nailing down the outcries and the and, and the issues that we're all facing. And decades go by and it still is relevant. And, and, and I don't know anyone that's quite as, you know, on point as Bob is. So so that's, you know, reason number one. Reason number two is, I, I guess, just the inspiration, like, you know, on a very personal level, you know, the, the inspiration that he provides to me. Um, as I kind of said at the start, you know, I, I, I've kind of got into writing and just being kind of more creative as, as, as I've got older. And it's really Bob that's kind of opened that up, not only in terms of just like listening to him and going, you know, the creative pursuits are a fascinating thing and you should do it yourself. But, but just the idea of, you know, here's maybe one of the greatest creative artists in, in, in world history 
and he's refusing to rest on his laurels. You know, he's 79 years old and he's still exploring and he's still creating and he views his life as this, as this odyssey. You know, he's he not busy being born, he's busy dying. And, you know, the, the line I said to you, you know, my parents warned me not to waste my years. I've still got that advice oozing out of my ears. I mean, we think of Bob as this opaque, mysterious character, but it's actually all there. You know, he's saying it. It's like, guys, you've got to get on with it. You know, make the most of your lives. The answers are in the songs. You just have yeah, to listen. And he, he has said that too. Just read the songs. He's the enemy of the unlived, meaningless life. Again, yeah. Rough and Ready Ways. It's, it's, it, again, it, it, it's quite clear. Um, the, the, the answer is there. It's like, just go and explore, make the most of your lives, go and go and do the things that make you happy and make you interested and, and blow your mind. That's, that's the key to life. And um, yeah, if that's not inspirational, I, I don't know what is. So yeah, I, I thank Bob for that. You have been listening to the Bobcats, a Bob Dylan fan podcast. You can find back episodes of the show on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Please feel free to rate, review, and share a link to this podcast with your Bob-loving friends around the world. For the latest Bob Dylan news and commentary, follow me on Twitter at Matt underscore Stike. Once again, thanks for listening, and be sure to join us next time for another episode of The Bobcats. to your songs that you want to say to people? Good luck. Good nerve. You don't say that in your songs. Oh, yes, I do. Every song tails off with good luck. <laughs> I hope you make it. <laughs>